0: I'm so glad you're with us today i have a special podcast for you i am talking to dr elena lister and dr michael schwartzman about their brand new book giving hope conversations with children about illness death and loss it comes out august 30th we spent our hour together laughing chatting sharing personal stories really comfortably banging around in the world of grief and loss with children. I think you're going to learn a lot from this conversation. Dr. Lister in particular shares with us her own experience in the world of grief, having lost her daughter to leukemia at a very young age. The wisdom of these two professionals, their friendship and their caring for each other is really evident in the way that they work and talk together. And I've read the book. I hope you'll run out and grab it. I think you're going to want to after this podcast. It really helps those of us who need ways to think about loss frame it in a simplistic way. So even if you're not talking to a child about loss, I really found this book to be super powerful. As always, remember, we love it when you come over to Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast, give us five stars, make a comment. It helps folks who are in the grief world looking for support get a chance to be on the receiving end of the suggestions that Apple gives for our podcast in particular. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, as always, Megan Hurden-Jarvis, and and I am the luckiest person right now because I am here sitting with Dr. Michael Schwartzman and Dr. Elena Lister, and we are talking about their book, which has not even come out yet. So you are getting a preview on something that you're going to want to run and jump and get And remember that I order five copies of the book, so if people are interested, can't wait to read it, just DM me and my team will send you one until we don't have any more. And if you're one of those people that always gets in there first, I might rotate around and make you buy the book yourself and see if I can get deeper into the list. But thank (laughs) you so much, the two of you, for making time to talk to us today.
2: We are delighted to be here. Oh, yeah. this is so fun. This wonder, is their first you.
1: podcast, you guys. So, <laughs> so I want to ask you both the question I ask all of my guests, which is how did you come to find yourself in the work of grief and loss?
2: I'll take that one first. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I was an adult and child psychiatrist in practice and teaching in all sorts of different realms. And then my then four-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. And she had a 90% cure rate and we were all going for cure. And after two years of illness, including two relapses, a bone marrow transplant, and so on, she died. And in the experience, we knew that she was terminally ill the last three months of her life. And she, at that point, had an older sister, three years older. And we lived that experience openly, honestly, She knew she was dying. We all talked about it. And we made the decision to do that because we understood how much she understood about what was going on and the ability to conceptualize death and what was happening to her. And in many ways, it was the worst time of my life and also the most beautiful time of my life. And But in our experience, we found that very few people could talk about death, and especially the death of a child. And while we understood that, we also had needs, and we recognized the gap. And I had an experience going to our older daughter's school. My younger daughter, who died, was too ill to get to go to that school. And we worked with my older daughter's class, the whole grade, the third grade, about facing the fact that their friend had a sister who was dying. And we did that because we didn't want everybody to be scared of us and not kind to my older daughter. And in that experience, which we write about in the book, I lived the fact that all these, they were eight years old, were able to talk with us about it and curious and empathic. And it just made me think, you know, children are not getting... The kind of respect and understanding and time they would do well with in discussing death. And so I was a major pivot point in my career. And I became someone who specialized in this, began to talk about it, write about it, teach about it. And here I am, (laughs) 20 some odd years later.
1: I have such official reactions that my own personal childhood loss was at age eight. And so I, I feel a little choked up about, about the idea of what it would have been like to be received even at school. Like it never has even occurred to me that school would have been a place where I could have been supported. You know, I'm, I'm so empathetic to how difficult it is to both be a grieving parent and also parent other children or, you know, that to me feels really impossible. What you've just sort of opened up is the idea that you could co-create mutual needs getting met in a way that I just really, it's really landing with me, both Mm -hmm. as a clinician and just as a, as a person in such a deep and beautiful way. So that's, that's my first thought. And then my second thought about that is, that the, that the grace of the community to also embrace that with you is just incredible. I I think for people who are listening to just, you know, maybe there are people out there that aren't great about asking to have their needs met, but what you have just let us know is it's not your needs, it's the
2: needs of the whole community. Thank you for saying that. That's so true. And I, we were worried the school would not be receptive. We asked them if we could come and talk to the grade and they were, and we were extraordinarily appreciative of that. And the children did well with it. Yeah. And then as Michael and I were working together, we found that that was true in other circumstances as well. But I want to echo something that you said. I learned so much from my daughter in the and both of them in the course of traversing our younger daughter's illness and death. It was a mutual experience of discovery, exploration, and facing something together. And I, if you had asked me two years before it happened, would you ever talk with your then nearing six-year-old daughter about death? I would have said, (laughs) no. (laughs) Right. So it was only because I had to, and that's what made me feel like I wanted other people to understand that if you don't have to, That's a a wonderful thing and it's also an opportunity. And if you do have a loss in your family, that it is an opportunity for closeness and togetherness and real growth on everybody's part.
1: Yeah. Dr. Schwartzman, how about you? How did you find yourself in this, you know, sort of mission called work? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're normal. So I'm just (laughs) just... You know, it's not like the big monies in grief and loss. So I'm assuming you have a story that calls you. It's
3: not crazy. like people are like open arm running and it's uh, so glad to be able to talk about this. Oh
1: my one. God, it's not great at a cocktail party, is it? It's not great. Doesn't you know, mean the person I'm, will not email you later because they have a question, but in the cocktail party, they're like, oh, I just see someone I know in the doorway. I've got
3: <laughs> and I guess emotional undertakers have to be careful how they make their entree. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really, it's interesting listening to both of you. I've had the, I had the opposite experience.
1: Yeah.
3: Which means, you know, I suffered from not having any experience. I think the first very significant person in my life who died was when I was 30. Wow. You know, so, I mean, in just listening to you, it's really, it's really true you know, you learn from your experience, you learn from your exposure. Okay. Now, the fact is, I was always very frightened about death. Yeah. And when I went to college, I guess this would have been like in 1974, or 1975, I took the first course ever offered at George Washington University called Death and Dying. Yeah. Yeah. And that was in 1974, 75, it was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And it was all about, yeah. you know, if you don't accept the idea of death, then you're not really accepting the idea of life.
1: Yeah.
3: So so, so that was very intriguing. It, it yeah. had no, it had no impact on my fear.
1: Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like a philosophy class more than, more than. Right.
3: It was, you, it was yeah. still, I, I just couldn't get into it, but the uh, past my fear. But I think, and I've said all this. elena it's it's like i always saw learning about things that were hard for me as part of what was going to make a huge difference when someone called on me Mm. you know to have something to say about that yeah and i think i was very fortunate in my own life i wasn't so fortunate in terms of the regular emotional ups and downs, but from, you know, so I learned early about that, but, you know, in terms of death, so, so, so then I go through graduate school and internship and I do these various rotations and then I have some jobs that expose me to death and dying, but it was when we were at school and we had this real case come up. And Elena came in and we worked together and it was a seamless kind mm. of thing. And and I really, and th- this is very emotional for me, you know, the fact that Elena knew how to talk and could talk and had the capacity to talk about things that are really, really hard to talk about yeah. and really, really upsetting to talk about, but to know that there was somebody there who could do that.
1: Yep
3: was very, very inspiring and enabling for me. And has always continued because and I've said that I said, Elena, you know, we can say whatever we want in this book because basically all we have to do is refer to some experience that you've had, which you've actually had. And and that's the fact. (laughs) I mean, so you know, it's all it's all true because we don't lie. We we obscure, we, we, you know, we 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 make anonymous. But and and so the idea, ultimately, of being able to talk about what frightens me and, of course, the ability to support people and be available to people to talk about anything that they need to talk about, but also just in general, this discovery and what you were just talking about, you know, when you suffer with a feeling inside, you know, you're very alone. yeah. And when you can say it out loud, you start to connect. And when somebody can actually hear and wants to talk to you about it, that's a togetherness in the face of that loss. It's almost like the best we can do. Yeah. And, you know, and we wrote a book trying to really offer what you might need as a companion, you know, when you're going through all of this difficult stuff and you're just trying to learn how to cope with it.
1: Yeah. Let's get, that's, beautiful. And what it's, what it's reminding me of is that I think I said this right before we turned the mics on that, that when people ask me sort of, how did you get into this work? I'm always like, well, I think I've just been chasing my own healing my whole life, (laughs) But but I think what you're describing is that energy, you know, I think people are either kind of drawn towards or, or pushed away. And so what you're describing is like moving towards the thing that you were afraid of and that you were, and again, I think having someone like Elena to, to, to lead you, you know, my first experience with a therapist was like, oh, this lady's not afraid of anything, not she knows everything or that she's going to be able to solve my problem or even necessarily guide me there, but like, she's not afraid. And I think about that a lot. You know, I sit with people whose stories you know, other people don't want to hear. They don't want to, they don't even want to think about, right? I know you yes. do it. Yeah. And, right. and to, you know, I, and when I sit with those stories, I ask all the details. Like, you know, mm. what were the clothes that you had to pick out for the coffin? Just mm. because I know you're ruminating on those, but also I want you to know I can bear witness to that story, right? Like, I, that's the, and so I, part of what I was struck by in the book is that really is sort of at the heart of the story. It's not, you don't come out and as some grief books do, by the way, there are some grief books out there that are like, say this, don't say this. And every time I read that, I'm like, yeah, but except when, (laughs) right. I mean, maybe don't ever say at least like, maybe that's the one that I can put on the top of the wall, but you know, there are people That when you say, don't ever do this to a griever, you're going to find somebody who's going to say like, actually, that is what I wanted you to do. So what your book is infusing, I think, and everyone should read it. I really think it's encouraging folks that it doesn't matter if you stumble. It doesn't matter if you get it imperfect. What matters is that you demonstrate that it is all talkable, that we can do all of it. So I want to dive in and ask you about... The, you know, there's, there's a, this one section where you're really talking about like how we can kind of do damage by trying to protect children. Right. Mm-hmm. Can you guys open that up a little bit? Because I think if I were to say when I'm working with grieving families, that's what I hear the most. I just want to protect my child. I just want to be able like, I don't know, like being thin or something or being tall or being rich. There's an inherent, understanding or they're supposed to be that that is a good thing. And that that sort of, we have to pull that out from underneath, right, protecting your child from something that is inevitable because we will all grieve is not necessarily inherently a truth as a good thing. So can you guys talk a little bit about how you talk about that in the book?
2: Sure, try to stop us from talking about that actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are deeply, deeply committed to the idea a few ideas. One is that your child is being exposed, as you just said, to death anyway. All the time. They see it in nature. They see it on Disney films. There's no Disney animated film that doesn't have some theme of loss in it. It's in in fairy tales. They hear it on the news, even if you protect them from it. So if you don't talk about it, you're leaving your child alone with it. So in fact, talking about it, is not introducing them to something that you could shield them from. It's providing a space so that they can deal with what they're feeling inside about it anyway. Oh. And we also believe that that shielding a child, so there's a phrase that I think of, um, the measure of a person is not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get back up. And resilience, which is something we refer to a bunch, does not come from wrapping your child in bubble wrap and not letting them experience anything. It comes from them figuring out with you at their side that they can get through hard things. Yeah. learning to live with loss is a hard thing. Yeah. So in fact, it doesn't shield them, it does the opposite. It may impair their ability to face hard things if you keep preventing them from dealing with the things that are part of life
1: right and accidentally transmuting to them that you think they can't handle it right like yes, that's yes. the thing i hear that yeah. from a lot of adults who were children in households where there was trauma you know the preciousness around the idea that when we were concealing or hiding or not talking about what what then is telegraphed is well I, you know i couldn't handle it as a child which partly is you know where some of those where some of those fears i think can come in.
2: I just want to add one more thing. Not only does it telegraph that the, you think the child may not be able to handle it, but that you yourself as the adult can't handle it. So, if your child is feeling stuff they worry that they're going to be too much for you adult to deal with because clearly you don't want to touch this topic.
3: Yeah. I mean just to elaborate on that point. The the word protect the word protection. Yeah. It's an interesting word in in child development, especially but uh, at least on a manifest level when you're when you're talking about a parent's experience of their child and wanting to protect them, we talk a lot about how a parent's own feelings can get very stirred up, especially when they see things registering yeah setting you know, in their child. So often parents will seek to protect really because they don't want to have to feel more about what's, so they, they, they try to control it out of a family's life. And ultimately, you know, that might be appropriate. That might be appropriate, but as an ongoing style, as Elena was pointing out, you know, you miss a lot and you're not prepared.
1: Yeah, and it's a little bit like copping a feel off your kids, right? You're saying you're doing <laughs> it for their sake, and really, you're doing it for your sake. And what it's making me think of is when my listeners know about my trauma history after my mom died. And really, what, what I was so overwhelmed, my central nervous system was so overwhelmed in the trauma of the PTSD. I could, I, I sort of had to pick between showing up for my children and and showing up for myself. I think that's a good indication that you're in trauma, right? And trauma is not the same as grief. Like traumatic grief is a level that it, you know, requires treatment and is different. One of my biggest worries was that my not being able to treat my trauma was going to become the trauma for my children, not the death of my mother, but my inability to and at least in my scenario, I knew that what I needed was the most straightforward language and I want I want you guys to talk about this. I knew both having been an eight-year-old who needed someone to talk to me about things and also you know I have a master's degree in child development, I've done all the trainings and all the things, I understood that the way that we demonstrate safety is with just the straight up facts. So I had conversations and, and one, and one thing that happened as I was leaving, you know, I live in a community and people were really warm and loving and love me and love my children and love my husband. So they were really trying to show up. And one mom said, what are we telling the kids? Right. Mm -hmm. Like she wanted to make sure we had the story straight. And I was Mm -hmm. like, we're telling the kids that I'm going into a trauma inpatient facility to get myself to get my body and my mind. So it's not ringing like a gong. That's what we're doing. And she was like, great, good. Can I call that trauma camp? Would that be okay? And I was like, sure. (laughs) I mean, it's not like a hospital. It's like a ranch. So I'm fine with that. But I, the co-creation of the idea of coming towards around that was so amazing to me and really taught me that it isn't about me being an expert telling people what to do. It's more, us coming together and everybody being comfortable. So can you guys talk a little bit about like, how do you dive in to these conversations? You guys do a nice job of sort of saying like, don't wait until there's something terrible happening to talk about death. But, but how, if a parent is saying like, okay, listen, we believe you, we've read your book, how would you encourage them to sort of practice opening up the conversation of grief?
3: So, you know, I remember many, many years ago, before I actually had children, Yeah, my own. I'm sitting with a kid, and we're looking at something and we're reading something, and at some point he says to me, he says, you know, promise me one thing, when you have children, you'll always read them the words that are on the page as you're reading to them. He says, you know, I learned how to read before my mother knew I knew how to read. And I saw how she changed the words. And, you know, it was very hard for me to trust her. Oh, she, You know, when when, when, when when she did that. And, you know, the idea, I think, and I think Elena will agree, you know, there's enough that goes on in life that children observe that you as a parent can use You know, to take off from and talk about the qualities that you're trying to get across that you think are important to understand. And of course, the more neutral the situation, the more you're talking about something that seems relevant and appropriate, you know, the more you're launching that form of a conversation. Mm. You know, on the other hand, we would end up saying that when there is something that's glaring and obvious in in a kind of language that seems appropriate, you know, go, you know, talk about it. And I think one of the things that we try to really convey is that the more a parent understands from their own point of view, what they see going on, the more readily they'll come to language that they can use. And a lot of this is not knowing what the right language is, that would be appropriate that people would be able to bear. And that's why we talk, like you said, about right. ongoing conversation and various conversation. But we'll, we, you know, we'll hear what Elena says, but the, 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 the idea is that you wanna be direct to the keeping of where the child's at, always from the child's point of view. And the more opportunity you have over time to do those kinds of things, you the more ready you are when there is something to quote really talk about.
1: What well, I'm so struck by, I didn't mean to interrupt you, no. uh, Lena. What I'm so struck by is that word trust because I'm thinking about the work that we do in my, in, in the trauma world, the inner child work, right? So we go back to a memory that was traumatic in childhood that probably formulated a whole bunch of ideas and behaviors that now exist in adulthood that aren't great. We go back into that and we simply allow that childhood memory to feel the presence of the adult, right, like that's at the root. And so all that is, is making sure that that unsupported, dysregulated child doesn't feel alone. We can't protect them because it already happened and we are not saving them. We are literally just saying the trauma here is that you felt like you had to be in this by yourself. So I, Michael, the idea that talking to children, reading all the words is demonstrating to them that you are a trustworthy resource and that you will be with them in the hardship is a little bit exploding my mind right now. I just that is such a a beautiful truth that bears out in on the other end, right? Like not the actual work in the moment with the children, but the people who grew up to be the, you know, the the folks who were dysregulated and having a hard time. I just love that. Elena, what were you going to say?
2: Um, Well, you know, in my practice, it happens that somebody will say there was a death when I was younger, and my parents didn't talk about it. And I have so many questions, and maybe they're not alive to ask now. And it sits with them. And because the parents didn't talk about death with them or loss, that same person who's now a grown up, as a youngster may not have turned to the parents to talk about other things. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever else. Right. So when you open up the conversation about something as hard as death you're teaching your child that you they can trust you to come to about other things as well because you're going to be steady and sturdy and you're going to be unflinching even if inside you know you you recognize you don't know all the answers but you are willing to be with your child in that experience and one of the things I loved about what you were describing about that painful time after your mom died is you were modeling for your children that there is nothing wrong with saying I hurt and I need something to I need to do something about it. And that is a gift you gave your kids because that is the other thing. When you allow a child to talk about this stuff and, and show their feelings and help them name them, they learn that feelings are okay to have, and that there's nothing weak or Inadequate about them or too needy or too burdensome because they have a lot of strong feelings about what's going on, whatever it is. And in our world now, there's a lot going on that oh, a child has really strong, upset feelings about. But the other thing is, once you allow yourself the idea that it is okay to talk with a child about death, then if you just be with your child, there are a thousand opportunities in the course of a week but you just don't like zone in on them because you're not prepared to have the conversation. But so we use some examples in our book. You come upon a dead fly, you know, okay, there's life and death happening in nature. The leaves change. Somebody buys you flowers and they wilt. Your child says whatever happened to, you know, so-and-so. So if you go by the cue of your child, you don't have to bring it into them. They already have it, they're just opening up to you about it. Well, the other thing that I think is so
1: important is that you don't really know what your kids are thinking, right? Like we have our grown up fears about what is happening. And I'm going to give an example. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I did a podcast with my three kids who are now 14, 12, and 10. I mean, honestly, partly because I just wanted to ask (laughs) questions. They love the podcast. They tell their friends that I'm a podcaster, like it's some kind of cool thing or that I'm an author, like, you know, (laughs) like I'm like, I'm part of the Rolling Stones. And I was like, guys, do you want to be on the podcast? And they were like, sure. So they sat upstairs and I was downstairs and I asked them the questions like, what was it like for you when Papa died? What was it like for you when Nana died? And there was, there were some things that happened that I will never forget. Some really graceful moments where my kids showed up for me in ways that I'm like, ah, kids shouldn't have to show up for grownups that I worried was going to be hard for them. And they have no memory I, there were other things like I thought they might feel bad about X, Y, and Z. And one, one thing that one of my children said was they felt bad that it was really fun because they were with their cousins. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad you told me that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want you to feel bad that you had fun with your cousins. We, you know, I have five brothers and sisters. We don't get together that often. Like for them, these were more like family reunions. But the thing that just slayed me, I, I just, at the end of the podcast, I was like, you guys, what was the hardest thing? Like, think back to these times. And just like, what was the hardest thing? And the hardest thing was me having a fight with my little sister. They had never heard me raise my voice that way. And that scared the crap out of them. And meanwhile, I've been fighting with my little sister like that. You know, that didn't, like, I didn't even really remember the fight like that. So what it really, and again, you know, you are encouraging almost like, almost like stretching or like yoga to make sure that you're including this as a natural part of your emotional exercises all day long. When I was reading that part, I was like, yeah, because otherwise you're never going to know these things. And as a child who, ha- who had trauma and didn't, I really didn't believe that the adults around, I was eight years old and I really just thought like, they can't help me. Mm-hmm. And they, those adults were younger than I am now, but I probably in my teens or twenties was like, yes, they could have helped you. Mm-hmm. Yes, they could have.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's, maybe they couldn't have helped me you know, profoundly, but they would have been able to do more than I was able to do with my little eight-year-old mind. So that constant invitation in, you know, the question I ask my kids all the time is, is how are your feelings? And I don't, they don't have to talk about them, but like, it's almost like putting it on a pin board just, and my middle guy who doesn't like to, he likes to tell you, and then he wants you to ask about five or six more times. And then you're (laughs) going to, you know, oh, so you were frustrated all day today. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. Like, okay. Do you want to talk about it now? (laughs) Do <laughs> you want to, how's, how's your frustration? now? you feeling so frustrated now? Do you want to, should we get <laughs> back into just the like constant, I can handle this. We can handle this. Emotions are a part of life. The feelings or the thoughts that we have about emotions, we can handle all the things. And I really think in your book, you are, it's almost like a hygiene like death hygiene, that we're keeping, (laughs) we're keeping the mind healthy about this thing that everybody is going to have to, is going to have to be able to talk about and be able to have to do. Is there, do you have, I mean, obviously with children and development and, you know, it's not the same to talk about a two-year-old to, to a two-year-old as it is to talk to a 15-year-old. Are there resources, tools, particularly like analogies that you, either of you lean on that you want to share with our listeners? You know, so sometimes people will talk about the circle of life that a tree is a seed. And then, you know, there are different, you know, if you go to a children's section of a bookstore, there are some really good books. That are talking about death, and then there's some books that you're like, "Why did anyone let anyone publish this? This is not helpful." So, and some of them are designed to sort of help children frame things maybe as better than they are. Like, you know, everybody goes to heaven. Like that maybe isn't helpful for every child. Do you like to come at it with a "It's you know, it's all nature, and we are." Do you like to? check in if there's a spiritual component and ask them about what do they believe? Do you take just
2: the cues from the kids? Oh, that's such a good question. I'll tell you a very personal experience. And Michael, I don't know if I've ever talked with you about this, although you know me so, so well. When my daughter was dying, she believed in heaven. Yeah. And she thought that she was going to go join her two grandpas who had died before her and that there was a ward, like a hospital ward up in heaven of all the children who had died of leukemia. And so she would be with them. And that is not how I experience things. So I was in this dilemma Mm -hmm. and my natural response was, was to stay with where she was. She clearly needed this idea. And so we would advocate that you stay with where the child is. And if there's a family religious belief, for example, you can teach your child that, And but I always, I think we feel that no matter what, you stay open to what your child is saying without judging it. And so about analogies, we really advocate that you not shy away from saying died yeah. because for many reasons. One is, if you don't say it directly, you're indicating that you're not comfortable with it. But also some of the words we in our society use instead confuse children, he's gone. So then every time someone else in the family is gone, they think that person may have died. Yeah, that he left us. He's in a better place. So those are things that are confusing for young children and prevent them from being able to process what really happened. So the one thing I can say is that we are very much in favor of using words like they died. Yeah. This person is dead and that's uncomfortable, but it's also the reality. Even if you believe that there's some spiritual thing that happens after death, that is, you know, that's in keeping with that. You can still say they died.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I really love, particularly with children is to keep that open, open, right? But what you believe right now about where grandma is like, that's great. That's good to know. And then when we talk about grandma, when you're 15, I'm going to ask you again, you know, how, how are you, how do you think about grandma? How do you, you know, because I think as children's minds and bodies evolve their thoughts and feelings and, you know, children are really happy to believe in ghosts and Santa and all kinds of magical things in ways that they don't need children. They don't need grownups to talk them out of. But I do think the way that you're describing and you do in the book, the plainness of the truth of the language, like it's awkward because we make it awkward. The word (laughs) death is not awkward like something dying is not awkward. My aloe plant that I threw away today, no one is going to cry over that. but it's the attachment component. Are we safe around the attachment? Did you have something you wanted to say about it, Michael? you know,
3: I, you know we do it's true. We we, we we take a direct approach and we believe in a direct approach but we believe very strongly that it'd be very age appropriate. So, you know, a child thinks in a much more concrete way and the way Elena was referring to those terms, kids will get stuck. Yep. And, you know, what we're really after is enabling a conversation where as a child allows themselves to realize more and we remain open to that, they can express more about it. And it's really... Seeing yourselves continue in spite of the jarring news, you know, the adjustment that you're trying to make. And yes, taking it from the point of view of the child, you know, you go as far as you can, you know, in that period of time.
2: We talk in the book about the fact that your child is going to have a three year old version of this particular event, a seven year old version, a 10 year old version. And if you lay the groundwork, early on your child will come to you to learn that to figure out that 10-year-old version with you and that 15-year-old version with you and i can say in the cross of our lives at any landmark time in my older daughter's life she revisits the death of her sister because where is my sister who should have been uh, at my wedding where is my sister who should have been my child's aunt you know those kinds of things so if you keep the dialogue open, and one of the things you said about your children, I, I adore because this often happens with teenagers, and we don't really address this much in the book, but it's a ver- you can use it with younger children. You go where your child is about communicating. So some children aren't really into words. Yeah. so you may use art. you may use music until and then help them find the words. And if they don't want to talk about it, that's okay. And you just say something like, when, whenever you do, I'm here. And, you know, listen, I'm a mom, I'm a dad. I'm probably going to want to check in with you about this at some point. And you can keep saying, I don't want to talk about it. But it is something that's really good to talk about. And we're here to do it anytime you feel ready. And I'll keep checking to see where you are about it. Mm.
1: It's so like supportive and encouraging, right? It's, it's not shaming. It's not, you need to talk about it's making, I don't know why I haven't thought about this in a long time, but it's making me think that when I was an early social worker working in a high school, one of the activities we used to do was play pickup sticks with teenagers, but each color of a stick mm-hmm was representative of a different emotion. So the teenagers would have to negotiate like, how much do I want to win versus how much do I want to avoid? Right. So if red is anger and each time you pick up red, I just want you to tell me a story of a time you got angry. It doesn't even have to be present day, particularly that it was teenage boys who were like, only picking up the yellow and the green. And it was all the emotions, right? It was all the but but it gets sticky when they want to beat their teacher, you know? And and I loved that game because it really it did what what it's doing right now, which is it made us laugh. And and I would be able to say like I know you're really trying to beat me without having to say any times that you were sad, but I don't know if you <laughs> It, there's only blue sticks left. But it, but it, sort of, it, it, it encourages us to do the thing that is a little bit tricky and hard. Can I ask you guys a question that's been in the back of my mind for a while? And right. I, I just like really don't know the answer to this. So I find that there are things that go on, like my daughter just graduated from middle school. And I know that if my mother had been here she would have given my daughter some piece of jewelry that my daughter did not want. She's not a jewelry person, but that is what my, my mom would have gotten her like pearl earrings that she never would have worn. <laughs> At the heart of my question is the like, what, do, what do we do when our emotional needs around the loss as parents could potentially conflict? Like I don't think my daughter wanted me to buy her earrings that she was never going to wear to represent the thing that my mother couldn't do because she died. So I didn't do that. But at the same time, I was navigating the feeling the loss of my mother. I always want to like take my kids lead. And I know from my own trauma, it's really important to address my own emotional needs. So I'm just curious, like, and that comes up I mean, it comes up in my sessions with clients, not so much, you know, whose needs matter more, my daughters are mine, but just sort of like, how do I know how to honor mm-hmm. the loss that I feel in the like sweet spot where it doesn't make, it doesn't, make somebody feel like their wedding is a sad day mm-hmm. and i'm just, i mean maybe you've had some of these experiences with your with your daughter and your need as the mother and you but i'm just curious do you guys have any thoughts on how one navigates that space so that then i can borrow your expertise the next time <laughs> i find myself uh, like well i talked to two experts and they they told me this is how to do it
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll give a go at that. And I'm really interested to hear how Michael approaches this as well. I would say that what you're describing is true as almost all, in almost all relationships. Needs always vary. you know, in a marriage, in a romantic relationship between siblings. So what you're talking about navigating is really a part of life. And so that's one thing. And so this actually isn't all that specific to grief, but what you're Mm -hmm. describing is a tremendous sensitivity to your child and recognizing first and foremost, that you had this grief and that maybe your child was not necessarily in that same mindset yeah. so step one is always to be able to check in with yourself I feel this need I'm yeah. grieving I see my children this comes up in my practice all the time yeah. my children don't want to you know observe the anniversary of the death right and so, right and so one of the things that you can do is make sure that you honor your own need yeah maybe you buy a pair of earrings for yourself that's what happened. Uh, Really?
1: I didn't buy a pair of pearl earrings, but I was just like, Mom, you and I are going to do this thing. We don't need to talk to anybody else about it. But
2: yeah. Right. That's beautiful. Another thing is to say to your daughter, you know, I don't know what she called her grandma, nanny, whatever it was. She's not here. And if she were, maybe you could even say this with a chuckle she would buy you a pair of earrings that you would hate. And that brings your feeling in without imposing it on her. So there is a middle ground in there where you can bring it in and not make it terribly sad. I, I have to share a very moving story. When my daughter got married, she and her husband to be planned the wedding ceremony and it was officiated by one of our dearest friends and unbeknownst to us, she had planned the first five minutes of the wedding ceremony to be dedicated to her sister.
1: Hmm.
2: And we were blown out of the water sitting there. I mean, we did not know this was coming. Hmm. I'm sobbing, my husband is sobbing, my son is sobbing, my daughter is sobbing, my son-in-law is sobbing. But what it did was allow us to grieve and recognize the absence and then move on to celebrate. Yeah, Because we had put it in a place and it was brilliant on her part with no direction for me. So that's another thing that you can, I, I'm offering and that you can find a way to give it a moment. Yeah. Without having that. it be the whole thing.
1: So it doesn't hijack. I love that. I, Cause we talk a lot about moving through that when yeah. you can honor and acknowledge the, the, uh, you know, almost like a dog settling, like it will, it, it, it leaves itself. Yeah, You don't have to, whereas if nobody acknowledges it, you might be in that wedding the entire day feeling just a little edge because you didn't yes. get it to move through. What about you, Dr. Schwartzman? What, what would you say?
3: You know, just in line with what Elena was saying, th- this is a very big deal to us. Yeah. We we devote a section, you see a section of the book, you know, to really the idea, we assume that everybody needs to clear themselves. Yeah. And in fact, you know, because it's so important to be able to distinguish between the child's feeling and your own feeling. And because it's so important that the child get feedback on where they're coming from, you really do want to clear,
0: yeah.
3: you know, how you, how you feel so that you're informed by it, you're sensitized by it, but you're not driven by it. We really advocate for a parent or caregiver to take their time yeah. and to really take care of themselves you know, so we're, we're openly saying this is going to happen to you. And we simply, you know, would wish that you would take that, you know, as something that you're going to deal with so that you can more clearly deal with your child.
1: And you guys talk about sort of the outward support in the book. What I think about a lot also is the responsibility that adults have to have, not just to, you know, you, you, you get very specific about like, you need to know your own feelings and, but being able to have other adults, maybe not even a therapist, just friends, family, whomever that can hold those feelings with you so that you can turn to them and say, you know, it's my daughter's wedding, but also all week I've been having these feelings of loss. That that is another way of, it makes me think of Stephen Porges, who's like, yes, there's fight, flight and freeze as our instinctive responses. But actually the, really the first thing that we do with our big feelings is we talk to people, we connect to other people and we tell them, and we don't want to tell kids, little kids dump our feelings on them, but we do want to be able to name them so that there's oxygen in the room and the truth is there. And you guys do such a nice job of really guiding folks into the difference of that. But I think it's a fear for a lot of parents, right? That, it, that whatever that middle ground and, and particularly in early loss, in fresh loss, we're so dysregulated that being able to do it right is next to impossible. What I often say to people is it's okay to tell the truth. It's okay to say, I'm just sad because
2: yeah. of me. And that's also not- because your child is going to sense that you're sad. Yeah, so this way you validate, yes, I am sad. It's not you. It's nothing that you did. I'm sad because my mother died, for example, in your situation. We give a story in the book about a dad whose daughter wanted to talk about her mom, his wife, who had died. And every time they got in the car, she would want to talk about it. And he was unprepared. He felt like, I I can't talk about this now. So what to do? Because she had the need and he had the need not to. And so what we offer is a middle ground, find a time when he could feel prepared and say, you know, I can't talk about it right now in the car, but when we get home, I'm going to go sit in the room for a few minutes, whatever, and then let's talk about it. I really want to hear what you have to say. So there is a way to sort of not shut a child down and still meet your own needs, I think.
1: Yeah. You're nodding, Dr. Schwartzman. Do you have something to add?
3: I completely. I completely agree. I mean, I guess ultimately we're, we're all saying that being emotional is expected. It's more how you learn how to bear up within something that's inevitable, you know, and keep going through it. Yeah. If not around it or not, you know, some way else.
1: I think you made such a really important point, Dr. Lister, about energy being something that people can feel. And when we don't name what the energy is, we leave children who are really narcissistic (laughs) from, you know, all the way through. Generally, if they're in the room, they're going to, you know, think maybe whatever your feeling is, is being driven or caused by them. And, you know, there are some studies out there that like, that doesn't end. If, If people's parents get divorced when they're 25 years old. (laughs) <laughs> their first thought is it's about me i mean whatever as humans we're pretty narcissistic but when you don't have the intellect to to imagine anything else as kids under 10 really don't then whatever the energy is that i can feel radiating off of mom might then become some kind of problem i'm trying to solve for her because it's dysregulating me because i don't know what it is and so often those folks will end up being our anxious adults, right? Because they're, you know, there's no relief to that intuitive system that can sense something. And I find that that's something that I can talk to kids about, you know, Mm -hmm. like, listen, you don't have to tell me, but I can feel it. Just the same way, if I said to you, I'm not in a bad mood and I am, you would know I'm not telling you the truth. You can feel the difference. Like words are there to communicate, but we can choose to use them to not tell the truth. (laughs) It will be confusing and I can confuse you with it. But I think that's almost like a relief. It's almost like a permission slip to parents, right? Which is like, listen, even if you wanted to protect them, you can't really do it because they are really right-brained for a lot of this. You know, they're more in tuned because when you're 30, you're not looking to your parents to give you a guide that everything is okay. But when you're six you are so maybe well maybe you are maybe,
2: right? a, 30, maybe. a little bit also yeah. who yeah. knows
1: it says the woman who was pretty traumatized after her mom died and she was 45 when it happened exactly right but i mean the actual sort of that checking back of like is it okay to climb this step is it okay to go over to my friend's house am i safe to do this we're really tagging back in that attachment way And if I can feel this energy that you're not okay and you don't say I'm not okay because of whatever, I'm carrying that garbage into my play date over at, you know, Stephen's house.
2: Or not going on the play date because I'm too worried about you, even though I don't say so. I'm just going to stay at home and say, I don't want to go when really it's, I think mommy is too sad. And the, the beauty of saying I'm sad is that you teach children that we remember people. So, of co- and also how bizarre if you let somebody important in your life as a mom died and you don't remember them at important events. So you're, you're modeling again for them that's that man. the way we handle loss is by remembering and carrying people forward. And so, yes, you're sad. That's, that's natural. And it's a sign of how attached you felt to your mom and how natural it is with people we lose that we love. Or we're going to remember them at important events.
1: Yeah. You know, so you, I threw my back out right before I went to treatment pretty severely. Cause I have a nice somatic system. That's like, Oh, you think you're going to function normal? We have different ideas, which I'm, I have respect for like, Oh, okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to really screw things up. You will. Stop me. And I threw my back out and my daughter. So this is almost three years ago, like her little friend came and rang the doorbell. And so I was in another room but the friend said, do you want to come and hang out with me? And my daughter said, I think I better stay here in case my mom needs me. And I was like, we're done. I'm leaving. I'm not. There's no way I'm putting this on her shoulders. There's no way she can do that. She's not going to inherit old patterns for me. And I think of that overhearing that sentence as such a gift because, I mean, I was headed there anyway, right? Like my ruminations, I was losing my mind. But- that to me felt like, you know, as parents, we really are trying not to revisit the pain of our own childhood onto our kids. And I just felt like, you know, she just wrote me the note that was, you gotta you gotta go take care of this because she was she should have gone out to play with her friend, right? I mean that's we I we, mean but
3: it's it's wonderful that you could be in both places at the same time. I know that's yeah. exactly right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And, and she knows that story and she knows how important it was. And she knows that she was a part of my knowing how to take care of myself. One of the things that I think about with grief and loss and comes up, you know, cause most of the, most of the people I'm working with have compound complex loss. And so something has happened that's hard, but they're having an outsized reaction because really there's like some splinters from stuff in their childhood that never got healed. And one of the things that i'm that i'm aware of is that there's this idea that that things could be less painful you know if i had only x y and z people say this a lot like well i didn't get therapy then or i didn't do this then or i should have come and i just really think there is a tremendous amount of universal wisdom to however you come to grief and loss whenever it comes to you i think it's an opportunity to transform energy and to really accept there was a before and now there's an after and we're going to learn and and invent and and grow into the after with this new grieving part of us but i think almost like on a spiritual level believe that we we show up for healing at different times with different levels of healing and so i what i really loved about your book was that that if you can be courageous and comfortable and encouraging and inviting, we can be offering young people, children, the opportunity to start the belief that there could be healing, the threshold of understanding really early. And I just-
3: The experience I, of healing. Yes. The experience of healing.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly right, right? Because what you described, Dr. Lister, is that you and your child's school community experienced healing together without them having to be the primary griever, right? Mm-hmm. Like their grief adjacent to this story, but still they were brought in mm-hmm. to the belief and the sort of like holy reckoning of healing. Like that to me is that, I mean, I can't imagine anything more amazing that could come out of profound loss than the idea that you could create hope and a belief that healing, that it's not just a trauma, that it's not just life is less than forever and ever. Amen.
2: I think you said something very, very important here, which I want to emphasize, which is that they're not mutually exclusive. It can be a loss and it can be devastated. And also you can grow from it and find hope. And those sometimes go hand in hand. And so sometimes people feel, well, if I'm growing from it, you know, that trivializes the loss or I shouldn't be allowed to feel that there's growth that could come from this. Or I can't possibly imagine feeling anything hopeful at this moment. So yeah. if you say, well, you know, you don't have to let go of your grief in order to find space for thinking that the future could have things for you in which you grow And find a way to live with it, even if you don't feel you can live with it now easily.
1: I love the way you put that. And I think also, you know, that idea that like I'm betraying my actual experience if I let myself laugh or, you know, children really are these just little explosions of energy. So being able to, as you talk about, encourage them to have a full spectrum of emotional experience and that, you know, one is not proving to the other is really important for kids, but it's also really important for adults. You know, so many adults feel like, oh my God, I laughed at the funeral and, you know, that was a betrayal. I also think there is this thing that I don't think it's, I don't think everything is Oprah's fault, but I do think sometimes <laughs> we see things in magazines that are like, oh, you know, traumatic growth. And, you know, not everybody is going to go start this Susan G. Komen Foundation because their sister <laughs> died at Peter. And I, that's not the only way to honor loss. And, that's not the biggest proof of love. And you don't have to do what, what I've done or some of my colleagues have done, which is take a big left turn and really embrace this. I think that that's the right thing for some people. And I think it's not going to be the right thing for all people, but I, but I think being able to sort of say we are changed by our loss. We are changed by our loss. I mean, actually, you know, There's some medical doctors out there would be, who would say like, no, I can check your gut biome and tell you how you're changed by your loss. Hmm. And, you know, you don't have to build a library at a Ivy league college in, and honor your person in that way, that that doesn't make it a more valuable and important loss. When, when my mom died and I was writing and I put things up on a blog I had a very quiet, you know, it would be hard to find me if you Googled me. I had six friends on social media and they were my siblings. You know, I just <laughs> didn't, have a, I didn't have a public presence because I really sort of espoused to that idea that keeping myself private was a way of taking care of my clients. I just, honest to God, couldn't do it like that anymore. I actually needed the mirroring from more people about, oh, your experience makes sense to me. And so when the writing got out there, there was a lot of like, your mother would be really proud. And I was on this interview with someone and they were still like, Oh, well, I imagine you're going to dedicate your memoir to your mom. And you know, she, she would be real. And I was like, look, this has to stop. (laughs) Just, you know, she would not be proud. My mother was (laughs) unbelievably private. (laughs) Yeah. And actually someone in treatment said it too, like, God, well, you know, she would have been so honored to know that you were so affected by her death. And I was like, you didn't know my mother. That is not how she would have felt. She mortified that she had caused this much trouble in my life. And she would probably not speak to me for quite some time if I was like, I'm going to write a book about how much I love you and how hard it was to lose you. So so I also think, you know, just like everything else that we've said today, which is that we just don't need to assume anything is a one-way thing. It's so good to ask and so good to make room. And I really actually think it's a way of honoring my mom to be like, no, no, this is who she really was. Like, I'm still writing this book. I'm still talking about her. And she would have been pissed and she would have yelled at me. And that was who we were. You know, that's who we really were. It wasn't a more perfect version. I loved her for who she actually was. And she was private. This would not have been her favorite. You know, (laughs) Other people are really excited about all the traumatic growth that has come out of here. My mother would have been like, can you keep it
2: a little bit like. Under wraps. I have to say, I so relate to this because my daughter who was dying was furious that we went to her older sister's school and spoke about her illness that's my business it's private and we had to say well yes that's true but it's happening to her also and we need to take care of both of you but she was furious about it so yes you know and that was brings me to another thing about siblings sometimes one sibling cries And then the other sibling is just like, I don't know, playing with a truck or something or wants to go off on play date. And so if you convey that both of those are okay reactions, that like no two people are like, why should we grieve alike? So, you know, grief is different for every single person. And it's a process. It's not the same as it was in the beginning, a year later, two years later, three years later. So allowing for that means that you can diminish some of the guilt that can happen if you allow yourself to go ahead and either let go of aspects of the person or live a life that is actually joyful after somebody that you love died.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's what I think is the truest and we've laughed a lot today, right? Like we're yes. talking about the hardest subject there is and we're laughing, but I think that's the truest, right? Whether it's your you know your child or your mother or your you know professor in school i don't believe any of those people would have wanted us to only feel the sadness and the pain and the whatever so i don't think my mother would have agreed that this is the track she would have picked for me <laughs> and me talking about her all the time <laughs> but the idea that i didn't just stay in the somber sadness because our relationship wasn't somber and sad. That's not who we were to each other. It was like a very real life relationship. So that's how I always try to think about traumatic growth. Traumatic growth is really just not staying in the trauma. That any footprint that is one step forward in grief away from just the terrible thing that happened. And, you know, again, just a reminder for some people that might take some intervention, that that it's not uncommon for people to only be able to remember what their person looked like as they were dying and for that to, you know, cause distress and there are treatments that we can do to help with that. But I think the way that love works and the way that attachment works, that that's really what people would want is for us to be able to take a couple of steps forward where, you know, we're a little closer to joy and laughter and, you know, all that other amazing good stuff in life. When I talk to people about grieving, that's what I describe, Mm -hmm. is that we're going to do the heavy lifting and the hard energy, and we're going to move and transform energy so that you are available for the parts of life that are not grief, Mm -hmm. that are, you know, joy and pleasure and excitement.
3: I think the (laughs) the way in which you evidence this and the, the it's so just interesting, the contrast between the way you are and the way you describe, you know, your mother being private It's just the way in which you've permitted yourself to adjust and open, you know, to what might feel terrible yeah. you know, is very inspiring. So it's just it's lovely to hear. And I think, you know, it's the same way, you know, it was just more developed with Elena to, to be able to hear that she was able to go into places that would then demonstrate for other people how they could go into those places, you know, really enables this kind of process. So if we're all like this, you know, and we're all benefiting, and then it, it works in a continuing kind of a way, you know, yeah. we'll all get better, which <laughs> obviously we need to be. I mean.
2: mm, yes, God, that's such a hopeful message. I love that. Well, I think so. Well,
1: it's as though we were trying to hit the mark as we're wrapping up our podcast. Don't practice that, people. That was not rehearsed. But on hope, when we're talking about this gorgeous book called Giving Hope, seems exactly the right way to wrap up. You guys have been a complete delight. This is such an important book. Your work is such a gift. I really do believe. Even though half of the books that I read about grief and loss, I threw across the room because I felt like they were personally betraying me. I think, right? Everyone does it. People will throw my book across the room. I can't wait to earn that right. But, but, (laughs) everybody's stories, everybody being able to say, I survived this because everybody has those moments where they're like, I don't think I'm going to do this. People look at us and say, Well, I would never survive it. Like, no, nobody thinks they can survive it. And yet, the percentage rate of survival is very high. And so being able to come out here and say like, yeah, no, I know. I can remember the time when I thought I would never experience or feel anything but pain. Lo and behold, the human experience offers us things that we could never imagine. And to be that person for you to sit and tell us the story that your daughter died and also offer us your wisdom and experience is just completely gorgeous this really it's like such an honor i'm so excited for your book to get out there there's just so many people so many people so many children that are grieving and we owe them actually we owe them better than what we're where we're standing right now and i think i think your book is going to offer that so
2: thank you for it it's so moving i just have to say that is so moving and really it's been an honor michael you i bet you feel the same
3: absolutely it's a yeah. pleasure it's just yeah. You, you know, it's, it's nice breathing with you. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you
1: so much. Yes. This was such a delight. Good luck in your work, and we'll Me see too. you. Stay well, Thanks. stay safe. Okay, okay. bye bye.